Hello and welcome to Still a Nurse Podcast. I am your host, Tristan, a registered nurse, wife, and mother. Join me as I set out to discover everything the nursing profession has to offer. Through conversations with other nurses, we will take an insider's look at common nursing positions and explore alternative career paths few know about. We'll discuss the highs and lows of nursing, how to love your work and prevent burnout, career advancement strategies, relevant current events, continuing education to improve your skills, and along the way, we'll hear amazing stories that are heartbreaking, inspirational, or hilarious. Let's have some fun. Hello, Still a Nurse listeners. I'm excited to bring you a new episode, and this one is a little bit different as we are talking to a journalist from the Wall Street Journal, and I'm so excited that she's been able to join me today so that we could talk about something that I think is super important for all nurses to learn about, especially those who are dealing with the burden of student debt. So without further ado, we'll jump right in and I'll introduce you to Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Well, why don't you introduce yourself just a little bit and what it is you do for the Wall Street Journal? Sure. So I'm on the journal's investigations team, um, which means I cover any number of topics uh, over the course of the year. And more recently, I've been focusing on doing some stories on student debt as part of a larger series that the journal has been doing. Um, And so my most recent story that I wrote with my, um, my fellow reporter, Rebecca Smith, was focused on a program that is um, there for the purpose of sending healthcare professionals to underserved areas um, in exchange for some loan relief, but in some situations ends up leaving the workers with a lot more debt than they came in with. Perfect. And the article, for those who are looking for it, is called Program to Cut Healthcare Provider Student Debt, Stick Some with Even More. And it is a fantastic read. I really highly recommend reading it. But for now, we're going to have the fun of hearing Rebecca tell us about it. Um, So, Rebecca, why don't you tell us um, what this program is, when was it started, and what is it supposed to do? Sure. So it was the it's the National Health Service Corps, which is it was something that was authorized by Congress in 1970. It's part of the Health Resources and Services Administration, which is an agency that falls under the Department of Health and Human Services. And the goal of the program was to ensure that um, that healthcare providers had some incentive to go to underserved areas. Um, that you know, healthcare providers often know that they can make more money in cities or in more concentrated areas. And this was was a program that would incentivize them to go to more rural or more underserved areas by offering them a certain amount of loan relief for their student loans. Um, And so so the loan repayment program specifically was introduced in 1987 by Congress, um, and it it established that the program would offer up to um, $50,000 in exchange for two years of service. And then more recently, in 2018, the program added uh, two others, a substance use disorder program um, and a rural community loan repayment program, both of which are three years long. And those offer slightly more in loan forgiveness in exchange for this longer period of service. Okay, great. Thank you. And um, just because I know it comes into play later in some of the stories, are those programs interchangeable or are they all very separate and have their own separate set of rules? 
they are not interchangeable. And that's a very important thing to understand when you're getting into one of these programs is that um, it's not possible to transfer once you've been uh, accepted into one program and centers that or clinics that qualify for some of these programs will not necessarily qualify for other programs. And so we spoke to some healthcare professionals who, um, who tried to change positions to work at a clinic that qualified for one of these programs, but not the one they were currently in and were told that they were violating their contracts and that there was no way to transfer out of it. Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us about, I believe it was the nurse in Tennessee, correct, who had that exact scenario happen. Would you mind telling that part of the story? Yeah. So one of the nurses that we feature in this story, her name is Kelsey Bowser, um, and she works for a mental health clinic in Tennessee. And she had applied for the rural focus program at her clinic's recommendation. She got approved last July and she got loan aid of a little over $8,000 in exchange for three years of service. And then about a month in, her employer offered her a promotion, which was working for the same um, the same company, but at a different clinic in Nashville that would raise her annual salary. It would make her a nursing supervisor. Um, so she called the um, HRSA, which administers the loan repayment program, and asked if it would qualify. She was told it did, um, and she took the job, submitted a formal transfer request, and then heard that she had been denied. Um, and by the point that she did that, her previous job had already been filled. And she was told that this new clinic, uh, the reason she had been denied was that the new clinic was in Nashville and it therefore didn't qualify for the rural program, but it did qualify for the traditional program. So she asked if she could transfer. She was told she couldn't. And she was told that if she didn't find a qualifying job in her rural program, she'd owe the government more than $270,000, which was more than 30 times the loan aid she'd gotten in the first place. And that is just an absolute nightmare of a situation to have this awesome opportunity and then just totally have it turn around and ruin you financially. Um, so I just think it's such an important story to share with other nurses who might be looking for something because it sounds like an awesome way to help with the burden of student debt. Um, so how is it possible for someone to get a relatively small amount of loan help, like she had just a little over 8,000, and then to suddenly have that be able to cost her 270,000. How is that even possible? What is causing that penalty? So the way the program is structured, which is designed to deter people from, you know, joining the program, getting loan relief, and then bailing early, is that if you leave before your contract is up, you owe um, a certain amount of your loan relief back, sort of prorated for the amount of time you've served. And you also owe, if you're serving full-time, $7,500 for every month of your contract that you don't fulfill. So in Kelsey's situation, she had signed a three-year contract. She changed her job right at the beginning of that contract. So that that meant she owed $7,500 for, I think it was... Uh, it would have been more than 24 months because she was still in her first year of three. Um, so maybe even 30 plus months. Um, so that time 7,500, in addition to interest, which most recently has been uh, put at a little over 9%. So the numbers spiral out of control pretty quickly. Um, and I, I think the penalties are really sort of the, the main 
part of this program that people take issue with. Um, you know, the participants in, in every case that we talked to had joined the program with every intention of fulfilling their contract. Um, we're not leaving just for fr frivolous reasons, but many of them either lost their jobs, some because of COVID, some for other practical reasons. Um, in Kelsey's case, she decided to take this promotion because she believed it would still comply with her contract. But um, but I think people are really astounded that you can get stuck with these penalties, even in situations where you're not changing your job voluntarily. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, do any of these people get told as they're signing up about these penalties or is it just kind of fine print that they don't read? So that's the thing is it is very clearly stated in your contract. Um, it's not, so, they don't, advertise it, I would say, like when they're trying to uh, get people to join the program in the first place, when they're recruiting people, you know, obviously uh, the agency touts the loan relief much more than the prospect of these penalties, but it's not hidden fine print. It is in these contracts. Um, I think what, what we find is a mix of people sometimes not always reading the fine print, sometimes thinking, you know, there's no way that I'll get held to this. But I think more generally, people didn't have any expectation that they might lose their jobs and thought, you know, someone else in the story spent a year at her clinic before even applying to the program to make sure that she liked it and would want to stay and, you know, wouldn't have any issue fulfilling her contract and then ended up losing her uh, job because of COVID related cuts shortly into when her contract began. So I think for the most part, it's just that people don't envision losing their jobs. Um, and, you know, no one could have seen the COVID pandemic coming in the first place. Um, so I think there, there's been a lot of disruptions that people didn't quite see coming. And has the program done anything to help with the issues caused by the pandemic? Because in those situations, it's nothing that the nurse has done or the other healthcare workers have done to lose their jobs. It's just something totally out of their hands. Right. So they've added in some additional flexibilities. They are giving people 90 days instead of 30 days to find a new job. If they lose their job, they added in another 90 day suspension that you can get on your contract for COVID related reasons where you don't have to submit any documentation. You can just cite the COVID pandemic. Um, and there are various other flexibilities in terms of like how you can qualify a, a clinic for this program, but it doesn't seem like the agency has taken any sort of larger look at the penalty structure in light of the COVID pandemic. They, there are two ways of relieving um, someone's problems with breaching their contractor that you can get a suspension. Um, you can apply for, for suspensions for up to a year at a time, sometimes um, for up to three years. Um, and you can apply for a waiver, which would excuse your debt permanently um, if you can prove, you know, that enforcing the contract would be unconscionable and that it's impossible for you to, to serve out the remainder of your terms. But we found that that the waivers are really rarely granted um, and they, they make it extraordinarily difficult to really excuse this debt. Um, and so, so it doesn't seem that the agency has really taken sort of a broader look at how to reshape how they're um, dealing with breaches of contracts in light of COVID. Okay. So it sounds like that's something that they still need to work on. Um, I know there's another story about a nurse practitioner that had um, a big issue with this as well. And I was wondering if you could share her story, but her name is Brandy. Yeah. So Brandy was our, our lead example in the story and she, she had a, a pretty um, harrowing 
tale to tell, I thought. She, she's a nurse practitioner in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. She was accepted into the program in 2019 and got $25,000 in debt relief. Um, she was doing the part-time version of the traditional two-year program. And less than eight months in, she lost her job because of COVID-related cuts. And she was put on notice that if she didn't find another qualifying job in 90 days, that she'd owe the federal government more than $85,000. And so in her situation, you know, she has applied for more than a dozen jobs in the area. um, And what's making her situation particularly complicated is that her husband, um, I think shortly before she lost her job, was, uh, was diagnosed with kidney cancer, which is now in stage four. Um, and he gets treatment locally in Pennsylvania. They have a son um, who, who gets cared for by family they have in the area. So when the service corps um, offered her sort of like, these are jobs that you could consider applying to, one was Illinois, in Illinois, 700 miles away, and the other was in California. And for her, moving just isn't really practical. You know, she has all these extenuating circumstances. So she applied for a waiver. Um, citing her husband's illness, and she got denied. And the service corps said that it had determined that compliance with her contract, quote, is not impossible and does not involve an extreme hardship. Um, And so I think she's one of the examples we saw where it just seems like, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic, but also just, you know, recognizing that sometimes things happen and that people aren't, you know, voluntarily breaching their contracts, but terrible things are happening to them, that it might make sense to have a more flexible interpretation of that waiver policy. Yeah. And going along with that, there's a quote from Dr. Padilla, I believe is how you say his name, and I'll have you tell mm-hmm. who he is in just a second. But he says in there about people being willing to move, I quote, that may be down, uh, the jobs may be down the street, across town, across the state, or across the country. This is a national program. And I think with people like Brandy, that's really not... You shouldn't expect people in that situation to move um, to fulfill this. So it's, it's just shocking to me, and I hurt for her that she did not get the waiver because you would think that of all people, she should qualify. Um, but I'll have you tell us who Dr. Padilla is and what his role is with this agency. Yeah, so he's the director of the National Health Service Corps. And I think from their point of view, um, what what they're aiming to do is both to ensure that um, that healthcare providers are going to these underserved areas and to make sure that the government's money that it's giving out to, um, to as student loan relief is being used wisely and to make sure that it's not, you know, that they're not just excusing people who are breaching their contracts and letting them walk away with the student loan relief um, and not having done, you know, provided the care that they're supposed to be providing. So that's sort of the, the, healthcare um, agency's point of view. And I should say that, you know, a lot of clinics that we spoke to, a lot of lawmakers that we spoke to really praise this program. It's it's clearly, it has a very good intentions. And, so, and I think, you know, that something like 21 million Americans get served, uh, get primary healthcare from members or participants of the service corps. Um, so there's a lot of good that this agency is doing. Um, but it doesn't seem to have acknowledged that maybe some more flexibility is needed in these um, rare cases where where people lose their jobs. Um, and I should say becoming less rare situations where people lose their jobs and are forced to breach their contracts. 
No, I agree with that. And I actually live in a fairly rural area um, where any hospitals 45 minutes to an hour away through a canyon or through other small treacherous roads. And so I see the value in this um, agency and in this program, and I do appreciate it. And I'm grateful that things like that exist. But I do agree that there needs to be a new look on specific instances like these, because they are hopefully going to be rare and far between. But it seems Mm -hmm. like the waiver program does need to have some work done to help those who really shouldn't be forced to move when they've got a spouse who is, you know, deathly ill and such. So Mm -hmm. I'm grateful that you guys have brought this to light because I didn't know about it. And it really um, sparked my interest and um, got me a little angry, I'll admit as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a a lot of the stories are really frustrating to read. Mm -hmm. And so um, we already talked about how this program offers assistance in finding a new position. Um, But for those who are really struggling to find a job, do they feel they're getting enough help? I think the answer to that is is no. So what happens is they will, um, if you are breach, if you've breached your contract, the service corps will typically send you an email that's described as a site assignment um, where they'll offer you two clinics um, with with open positions that you could apply to. But I think this word site assignment is a little bit misleading there. It's really, they don't have any control over the hiring. You'd have to apply to those jobs like any others. And what we heard from a lot of uh, participants who had breached their contracts was that often the places were, um, were nowhere nearby. And, um, and often the people were not licensed to actually practice medicine in the states where uh, the service corps was suggesting they apply to, which obviously complicates that whole process, adds additional expenses. Um, and, you know, I think the nature of the program, of course, is that a lot of these clinics that qualify are really spread out because it is more rural areas. Um, and so I think like that, that just like is a little bit what happens that you, um, that they expect you as Lewis Padilla said to move if you breach your contract, but it did seem that in some cases people were able to end up finding jobs that qualified that were, uh, more nearby than what the site assignment emails were suggesting to them. That's good. Um, so I know that you had a lot of other healthcare workers in there, so you weren't able to focus just on the nurses. Um, But I was wondering if you have any other stories from specific nurses that you could share. Um, Keeping those nurses anonymous is obviously and uh, keeping the details to minimum. But are there other experiences that you can share? Yeah, I think there were other situations where we had nurses who didn't even um, leave their clinics, but they changed what shifts they had been working um, so, so one um, nurse that I spoke to had been uh, working the Baylor shift on the weekends and switched to working uh, and, and was accepted into the program while she was working that shift um, and then ended up switching to working during the week for the same amount of hours um, and suddenly was told that she was no longer in compliance with her contract. And in fact, that maybe she shouldn't have been accepted in the first place because just because the hospital treats the Baylor shift as a full-time worker didn't mean that the program necessarily did. So there are just a lot of bureaucratic hurdles with this program. And I think um, sometimes people have struggled to sort of get answers on what qualifies and what changes don't qualify. Wow. Yeah, that sounds 
pretty tricky if now they're coming back saying, oh, you didn't really qualify in the first place. Like, well, that's not on her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That's just kind of shocking to me. So did you have any nurses that you guys talked to that had a good experience with this? Because obviously it's been around for a long time. So I assume that there have been some really good experiences as well, but I'm not sure if you guys got to talk to any of those people. We mostly spoke to people who had breached their contracts just because that's what this story is about. But I should say that the they are in the minority by far. I mean, the so what the program says is they have a 1% average rate of defaults over the last five years. Um, that's obviously quite low. The, the number of suspensions that people have applied for have um, increased in the last couple of years as a percentage, but um, but are still, I think, currently below 10%. So for the vast majority of participants in this program, you, um, you get accepted, you get your loan relief, and you finish your contract, and it's fine. Um, and, and there, in fact, on in various Facebook groups that we are in, you can see positive experiences that people have shared with the program, including nurses. Um, it's just that, you know, there, there is this um, sliver of participants who just do sort of get screwed by the program in the end. Yeah, there's always a, a dark side to even the best intentions, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you hope will come from sharing this story? And what can my listeners do to help? Well, so I think number one, the thing that we were hoping to achieve with the story is to have um, wider spread awareness of the full, um, you know, what people are signing up for. I think it's really key for anyone who applies to this program to understand what you're getting into, that the clinic that you're working for is not under any obligation to keep you employed. Uh, You need to make sure it makes sense for how much loan relief you're getting. For example, um, the nurse who got, I think, a little over $8,000 in loan relief in exchange for three years of service, when the maximum for that program that you can get is $100,000, you know, I think would would say that that she wished she had simply paid down the the eight thousand dollars in loan relief and not signed up for the program at all. So I think it certainly only makes sense if you have that higher level of debt to uh, to get relieved. But I think you also just have to consider, you know, there's always the chance that that you might lose your job, um, even if it's not your fault. If it's COVID-related cuts or anything else, you have to consider how flexible you are to be able to move if you do lose your job or to be able to commute a longer distance. Um, So I think sort of understanding all of that as you're uh, getting into the program is is really important. And then I think for Congress, you know, it would make sense for lawmakers to sort of look closely at why the penalties are as harsh as they are. We reached out to a number of people on the Hill or or former aides who were around in 2002 when the penalties were increased to $7,500. And a lot of people couldn't really remember why that change was made and, and didn't quite understand what the reason was. And there was a committee report that was released when that increase was implemented that said that the the penalties were being increased to bring the loan repayment program in line with another program that the National Health Service Corps runs, that's a scholarship program. But it didn't really offer uh, much further rationale than that. 
We've seen data that shows that the percentage of defaults was um, about 2% to 3% in the years before that increase was made, so not much higher than it is now. Um, So I think just sort of taking a look at those um, penalties and whether they really need to be as high as they are would be an important outcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And um, where can our listeners go to find more um, information of what you have written? So um, the story is, as you said, it's called The Program to Cut Student Debt Sticks Some with Even More. It's on the Wall Street Journal website. Um, And then to learn more about the program, you can go to the um, HRSA website. It's hrsa.gov. It's the National Health Service Corps. um, And it sort of lays out a lot of details of what the different programs do, who qualifies for each program, um, what kinds of clinics qualify for each program, and you can learn a lot more about it there. Great. Thank you. And is there anything or anywhere they can go to read just more of your articles as well so they can kind of find you a little bit more? Oh, um, yeah. If you just Google my name, Rebecca Ballhouse and Wall Street Journal, my article page should show up. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking time out of your schedule. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you and I look forward to my audience getting to um, hear this valuable information and be more well-informed. So thank you so much for all you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you guys found that information from Rebecca Ballhouse of the Wall Street Journal as valuable as I did. And while we're talking about it, why don't you head over to my Instagram account at still a nurse and leave a comment on what you think about this program to help alleviate student debt for healthcare workers. Let us know if you've had any experience and what that was, if it was positive or negative, and if you could recommend this program to others, or if you think there are possible changes that could make this program more successful in its goals. Until next time, remember, you're still a nurse.